1: Yeah, if you guys can hear me, Very if you guys good. can hear me, I'm good. Oh yeah, that yeah, sounds great.
2: Love when we get to sit with a guest who has an actual, legit microphone. It is just the best. <clears throat> it is a treat. In of times of Zoom conversations. <clears throat> um, Lucy, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, what, what uh, likely will be a lot of subject matter that is quite heavy um but that's that's like that's our jam that's my favorite yeah, that's, that's my favorite do. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite thing to do um uh and especially i think at a time like right now it's it's um especially kind of important to talk about uh things like caregiving and grief which is something that i i know that you know quite a bit about um why don't b- before we we get into the thick of it, um do us a favor and give our listeners a little of insight into uh who you are and what you do
0: yeah, sure so um I'm Dr. Lucy colonhy I'm a physician, an internist uh and a mom and a widow um and I'll just mention my husband who died of cancer. Uh, six years ago, he was a neurosurgeon and writer, and we had fallen in love in medical school um, and then grew up together as new doctors. And um, in 2013, he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and lived um, for two years after that. And we had a baby during that time. And then um, he wrote the memoir, uh, When Breath Becomes Air, about mortality and meaning and being a doctor and a patient. Um, and then after he died, I, um, uh, shepherded the book to publication and ended up doing a book tour, um, talking about some of those same topics. And then also, like you say about caregiving and grief, which were sort of the piece that I carried. And so, um, Mm. Mm. and then now I have a six-year-old who's really obsessed with this microphone that has a fuzzy (laughs) mic cover on it. That looks like a bunny.
2: So, you know,
0: life is full.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No doubt
3: it's so interesting how I I feel like there's a weird a weird thing in society where people for whatever reason um until reality comes knocking that like the broader public thinks that um they like doctors are are like immune to sickness for some, for some reason like it's like it's very like it almost strikes people as as very odd that a that a doctor has gotten sick um, or a doctor could pass away from an illness, and I feel like, um, I don't know what, it, it, like do you get that sense that 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 people feel that way like it it strikes them as as strange when when that happens?
0: You know, I haven't thought about it that way, but it's actually a problem in medical school. Mm. Um, like when professors are teaching about diseases, it's sort of like here are some diseases that some other people might get or some mm, other right. people have or you know there's medical students or doctors obviously who have myriad disabilities and are feeling like they need to hide them um and mm. so i think i think about it from the other side but i think there's the, there is sort of this bizarre um like wall or separation um and so and it's interesting because when i was um doing the book tour for Paul, I would describe like he was a doctor in the same hospital one day. And then the next day was a patient in the same hospital. And when I describe that feeling of like you get this upending diagnosis and here's what it felt like for him. I feel like doctors are able to hear what I'm describing, like, oh my gosh, that's what it feels like. And it's like, right. yeah, like for every single patient in here, you know, mm. that's what it right, feels yeah. like. Um, so it's been interesting actually to have even doctors in the health professions who are healthy, try on that idea for size and mm-hmm. seeing it through a doctor's eyes. Um, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. I guess that exists everywhere.
1: I, I was, I was going to yeah. wait to ask this question, um, but it, it's sort of come up for me now al- already, but I, I feel like it's it's interesting to think about how, um, how professors teach about these illnesses that will happen to other people and, and not you as these young uh, medical school students. But I imagine that it's funny because I, I've always thought of like doctors as they get older, they get more like disgruntled and like they've, they you know, it's like they've seen everything. So like they've seen these things happen so many times that it's sort of lo- like they lose that like emotional connection to their patients. But on the other hand, it, it, this makes me think about how going through that experience of loss and really seeing firsthand the sort of impact that illness can, can wreak on the health and being of, of a family um, experiencing that as a doctor, does that change the way that you practice and, and care for others?
0: One thing it sort of makes me think of is, you know, it- Anybody who, as they're getting older, especially if they were able-bodied and healthy when they were younger, I think you start to think about your own embodiment differently. Like if you're young and you haven't had to think about your body as vulnerable, you experience the world, like you move so easily, you experience the world through like your body is only pleasurable to you, right? Like exercise or sex or whatever it might be. And then you sort of start to understand that being in a physical body means something in terms of, um, you know, like your body can do things that you didn't want it to do or can fail you or whatever. And I think the thing that's been interesting for me um, is just to think really deeply about the ways in which um, changes in our bodies can change our identities. And in medicine, I feel like the way that manifests for me in an important way is we have all these choices in medical care. You know, it seems like it would be straightforward and all sciency, even as something as simple as like, Oh, your knee isn't working. Like, do you want to do a knee replacement and take that on? Or do you not? Or when you have a baby, like how, how you think about how you want to deliver that baby or um, even like big time trade-offs at the end of life. How do you want to prioritize quantity of life, quality of life? And I think, trying to figure out with people um, in my own family, but also as a doctor, like, how do we make your medical care fit who you are as a person and who you want to be as your body is changing? Um, And so I think, you know, right now I'm an urgent care doctor. And so sometimes I diagnose people with like life-threatening illnesses or something that's really upending. But most of the time right now, it's like, you know, actually right now I'm treating COVID. So that, is a different thing. That's a lot of vulnerability. People are really scared. People are really sick in the short or long-term sometimes, but let's say like, even, a even a not so weighty encounter with somebody who's like, um, like pre COVID, for example, like, I have a cough and I really think I need antibiotics. And I think I used to get into the nitty gritty of like, well, it's probably a virus and doesn't need antibiotics. And here's the pluses and minuses. And if you take the pill, you might get diarrhea. And now I'm like, oh, like, what are you hoping the antibiotic is going to do for you? And then the person says, I'm supposed to give a presentation at work tomorrow and I can't skip it. Or my sister had pneumonia and they missed it and she was in the hospital. And I feel like, unpacking like what does this choice mean to you in your real life Um, mm. feels like very deeply like my goal in medicine, even in something as like tiny how, as that encounter. How, how
3: broadly do you think, how broad, like, I mean, again, I, I want to preface this with like knowing full well that, that doctors operate f- and w- with their patients and their practice from all over the spectrum of how you could possibly interact with people. And, but, but, you know, having said that, preface it with that, how, how broadly do you think, because that sounds like an incredible approach. It sounds like a, it sounds like the approach that we've been, that we've heard a lot from a lot of people that we've talked to would be the ideal approach that they want. Yeah. Yeah. They, they want that. They want, they want to be considered as a human and not mm-hmm. just, you know, the, the diagnosis on the, on the, on the, uh, on the chart. Um, how broadly, Do you think that approach is being used in in medicine, at least in your anecdotal experience as a physician?
0: I think it's shifting. Um, now that there's like a lot more narrative medicine and exposure to stories, and it's just becoming an emphasis even in medical school curricula. Mm. Um, and then people have studied it. Like there are these various models, um, like in North American healthcare that have gone on, like- there was the paternalistic model, which is like, "Hello, I'm the doctor. Here's what you should do." Like 1950s, 60s. Mm. Then there it became like patient autonomy, but um, but let's just lay out all these choices, and then people should just have to decide. And we we like hold the choices and then tell them, and the person can decide. And then the one that is currently in vogue is almost like a pastoral role of like, "Tell me who you are, and we can decide together like what mm. how we should proceed." Um, together. And so it's changing culturally. Um, but it's also really hard because being a doctor or nurse or all kinds of health professionals, like there's a lot of burnout. And so yeah, yeah. if you yourself feel depersonalized, it decreases your ability to hmm. humanize other people. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, it gets talked about a lot. I, yeah.
2: I want to ask you something that's uh, probably pretty personal. <clears throat> and I hope it's okay that I asked this, but um, how, how, How much did your practice change after the death of your husband?
0: Um, It's so hard to even know. I mean, I think most of the ways it changed are what I already (laughs) felt like was important, felt like deeper or more visceral. But then at the same time, like especially in the first few years after he died, I felt so upended and sad and like unmoored in the world that I feel like just holding on to my career or being a mom. It's like, I was trying to like pull myself back into a future just through those identities and wasn't analyzing too much. Like what I was doing for a while is putting one foot in front of the other. And then now it's like sort of coalesced into more of a, like philosophy as time goes by.
2: Right. I your your story is so like I, you know the the situation that you found yourself in in terms of the way that you the way the, the the ways in which you sort of found yourself managing your grief um seem to be so peculiar and and unique. Um you know it's it's not often that you see a person lose someone that's so close to them <clears throat> and then immediately follow that up with taking this one piece of their work and and basically being at the helm of like touring that around and and offering that to the world and offering <clears throat> not only just a piece of work but like a piece of work that is so incredibly meaningful for so many people um but what was what was that what was that process like like how 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 was grieving for for Paul when you found yourself in that situation where you all of a sudden are now on a book tour and and you know placing him at the forefront of that and meanwhile trying to be a mom trying to be you know a doctor trying to grieve the loss of your husband. What, what was that process like?
0: Yeah. Um, I guess there are two huge parts of it that come to mind, both of which ultimately were really helpful. Um, um, apart from the fact that I felt so like raw and real that doing a book tour was kind of easy. Like, I think I would have had more like meta nervousness and I think I was just like, nothing can hurt me. I'll just go do my best. Hmm. But Um, the two big things, um, that were kind of helpful about having that bizarre situation are number one, I feel like I, you know, from the time Paul got diagnosed for about two years, I knew that he was going to die, like barring him being one of the clear responders to a novel therapy. Um, but then when he actually died, it was somehow so shocking, just existentially it was like it was shocking it's like Mm. he was here and then he disappeared and it just was that shocking and um even knowing he was going to die and so I feel like my experience of it was the getting to do a book tour for Paul and work on the manuscript and editing getting it out felt like continuing to be in relationship in a way like we had been going through his illness together so fused in all these ways. And then like the book sort of was a way to like be connected to him and his ideas and his heart. And, um, it was immensely helpful to be doing this kind of legacy project with him in service of it. Like it was the best, it was awesome. And then, um, the other thing is, and I know you guys think about this a lot is when you're the grieving person, sometimes people really don't know what to say to you, you know, or, there's all these ideas about grief, like, oh, it's going to be so awkward What going to say, and maybe I'm going to remind her that he died. And like, I feel like if you when forgot. you're the person, yeah, as if you forgot, <laughs> yeah right. I feel like when you're the person going through it, my experience was, I was never analyzing what someone was saying. I was just so glad that they were talking to me about Paul. Like I wanted to hear about Paul. I wanted people to be hanging out and talking about it. And so then- Um, Paul's book came out 10 months after he died and suddenly like literal strangers were asking me about Paul right right. around the same time where it's like, oh, it's almost been a year. And it's like, I don't know. I feel in my experience, anybody who's lost someone that they really loved, no matter what happens to you, no matter like I've fallen in love again since and out of love again since. And it's, but it's just, I'll always love Paul. And so, um, it just felt like the, I felt really lucky, um, mm. to be doing that. Mm-hmm. What is and the, I was just really proud of Paul? Yeah.
3: When you mentioned something there, when you mentioned that, um, <laughs> you know, even though, even though knowing that, that, um, you know, he was sick and, and, and from the, from the moment he was diagnosed, you, you knew that he would, he would likely pass away from the illness and, and that it was still shocking. That's something that that that's a that's a pretty consistent through line i think in in for for people anywhere there's like people dealing who have family members friends whatever that are that are that are sick for a long time and then <clears throat> and then pass away but it's still this shocking thing like i'm I'm curious just like from everybody's perspective like what 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 is it that prevents us that prevents us like prevents us in the in our human condition for like fully preparing for Mm. that 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 inevitable transition like is it a is it is it is it our you know undying um undying uh desire for a miracle to happen that like it's not over till it's over that we like that there's this that there's a there's oh like they're they're here now so as long as they're here there's just there's something to hold on to and that there something might happen and change like I don't know. Where Where do you guys think that's that comes from? Because it seems so
2: seems consistent throughout the world. It's a good question, man. I don't know. You know, I, I I I think I I mean I think it's just so hard to like you said, Lucy. It's like you knew it was coming, but then when it actually happens, it is so sh- it's so jarring. It's so shocking. It's like one moment they're there. And the next moment they're not.
0: It's almost like when a baby's born, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it's that <laughs> right, yeah.
2: you they can't, weren't
0: there and now they and are, now they there are. And Yeah, And, and world, it's like you, you can't comprehend
2: <laughs> that. Right. Exactly. That. And you yeah. can't, you, it's, it's too hard to comprehend hmm. what life will be like in the moment that once you cross that line, you know, totally. it's like, it's like, I, I. I mean, like, I, I, I hate to, I hate to compare this to the death of my dog, but like that, that really was, that really was like one of the, one of the, one of the most shocking moments of loss that I've ever experienced. And it, it, it's like, I was I was holding him. I was holding him while he was breathing. And I knew, I knew that like in, in one minute, in 60 seconds, he will no longer be breathing. I know this is coming. I know this is happening. And then as soon as he stopped breathing, it was like, yeah. Holy fuck, man, I, yeah, I wasn't ready. Like I wasn't ready. I can't. Uh, yeah. He'll never, now he'll never breathe again. Like i I'll, and uh, it's like, right? just, it's, it, it's not. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's just too hard to, it's like, infin- it's like infinity. I can't wrap my head around infinity. It, there's just, <laughs> right. no, there's just no fucking doing it. You can't. So right. it's, it's infinite, right? It's like Taylor's saying, "It's
0: like you can't. You sort of can't be ready."
2: Yeah, you yeah. just can't. You can't, and then it happens, and then and then it's like, oh, oh, now, now, now I'm here, and now this is like a new, this is the new normal, and I'm not. I had no. I had no. No matter how hard I tried to prep myself, I had no, mm-hmm. no capability of truly prepping myself.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I feel like you can do all these different things at once right like you can you can intellectually or even in your bones accept it right like yeah. really deeply accept it and still be totally shocked totally. It's like yeah. all of those yeah. things can happen at the same time that's why
1: yeah. but honestly um Jer, like, I like uh, real talk. I that's like my biggest beef with like the thing that you've been saying since we started this podcast. Of like, I'm just trying to fucking prepare everybody for when I I'm no knew, longer I gonna be it, here. I knew that and, was coming, I knew and that. it's Good luck with and, that. and it's yeah. bullshit because you can't, like, it's but I can, but I can, mean, but I can, you damn, can try, you can, you can
2: damn well try, right? And, the, and that's the thing, it's like the, it's you're better off to try than to not because mm. no matter, I, you know. Yeah. I, I think, I think. But it's this not your be,
1: responsibility either.
2: No, it's not. But, but, but to, to your point, Brian, I think that, I think that, um, you are, I think everyone is better off at least trying to do that, even though it's not possible. You're better off trying to, because it's got to lessen the blow. It's got to, it's got to, it can only be more in intense and more insanely incomprehensible If you're not, Mm. if you, like you said, Lucy, if you don't feel it in your bones and actually just accept the fact that. Cause it will always be acute. Mm -hmm. You'll
3: always have the acute, the acute, you know, despair and feel sensation of tragedy. But like when Brandon was sick, a friend of ours who, who, you know, we became really good friends with through the podcast and he had, he was a really young guy, had cancer return, you know, many times over and eventually passed away. You know, we, we, I think, I think if you, if you like, you know, gun to our head, was Brandon going to die? Most likely. Like that was, that was the answer. I mean, we, we, it was hard for us to see that. I think, um, because we were really hopeful that he would, that, you know, a treatment would pull through. Um, and we don't have the insight of being physicians as well. So like, you know, you that, that I'm assuming that, that is a mm-hmm. a thing that you, an angle that you're coming from where you're able to look at that through a bit of a more clear lens. Um, and, uh, and, and, and although the moment and like in the days after he passed away like were were you know horrible mm. the, like it that 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 came and went fairly fairly quickly at least for me like the that like heavy that like really heaviness and that sort of transitioned into a into um into an acceptance that i think had been growing and we had been like laying mm-hmm. a foundation for for a while mm. and uh and and made and made that transition of, of his life into, um, you know, a memory much easier and, 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 and beautiful
1: because we, because
3: we we had been laying that foundation for a while.
0: How? Like, what did you guys do? But I was going to say,
1: but I feel like that's a personal thing to, to Taylor. And based on like the proximity of the relationship too, because like his mom, like it does right. like that heaviness is with her every yeah, sure. day, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. right, na- right now. And so, yeah. I do think it is a bit of a, a proximity thing. Yeah. Like, yes, he was an important and meaningful part of our lives, but like at the end of the day, you know, like Brandon, I, I would have said, um, and would say, was one of my best friends. Um, the amount of time that we spent with them um, over that that last two years of his life was, it was a lot like he slept Mm -hmm. over at my house a number of times, we were really close. I was with him the day before he died. And I agree with you that, you know, the heaviness left in, you know, within a shorter time than I think, you know, um, a lot of people experience, but, um, you know, his mom lives with that every single day.
3: And I'm sure the relationship Depending on the nature of the relationship, you know, I mean, I, I, I feel like I feel like a a parent losing a child could be the at the very top of the list in terms of the the most challenging loss you could, you could face because they're because you think of that relationship as this is supposed to be the other way around.
1: The acceptance is harder. It kind of goes with that. Like, you know, it's harder for you to accept because it's not supposed to happen. Right. Yeah, and right. I guess, Lucy, for you, like, like, does that heaviness lift? Like, does, does that heaviness, can you even say that? Like it, I guess, I don't know. Does, <laughs> yeah, the, does the heaviness I lift?
0: Mean, yeah, I think so. Um, like to some degree, like I my sister quoted something when Paul first died and was like, um, it was from a friend whose dad had died and the mom said this and was like, I feel like I'm drowning or like I'm getting squished and carrying so such a heavy load, like all these rocks. And then she's like, as you go along, like you're carrying fewer and fewer rocks. And in a way you always want to be carrying some. Um, and for me, I do feel like I have some like waves of grief that Mm -hmm. are the same as they were before, but they're way fewer farther between, um, and the thing that's been interesting to me is like I love Paul the exact same and and I'm like less sad on a day to day basis, mm-hmm. certainly than I was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. beginning was a long time, like it was like a year or two of like feeling right. like that
1: yeah. most it, it, of the time. It reminds me of um like the two closest people that I've lost in my life in terms of friends were was um one was when I was sixteen years old, I lost my uh close friend at the time. Um, Mary Beth. Um, and that, so I would say like zooming out of this for a second and taking out the emotional connection, like I would say I was less close with her than I was with Brandon. But for me that hit so much, um, harder. And the reason why is because (laughs) I was in Florida at the time at a, a canoeing training camp and I had, gotten a call that she had been hit by a car and, and died. And, and I wanted to go, we had four classes together in school. We sat beside each other in in every class. And, um, she was one of my closest friends in school. And I really wanted to come home for the funeral and, um, I couldn't like my, my parents wouldn't fly me home and I didn't have any money. And so it was like Uh. incredibly challenging. I remember sitting in, um, in class like a few months later and I looked at the desk next to me and she wasn't there. And I just started drawing on my hand with a pen and I carved her hockey number into my hand. That's still um, scarred on it today. And like, wow, it was just like such an, like, I didn't know I was 16 Mm -hmm. years old. I didn't know how to like express my grief. I didn't know how to talk about it. And like, I sat with that heaviness for so long because there was no outlet for me to express that. And I felt like I couldn't talk to my friends about it. And even the ones that I did, I just felt like they didn't understand what I was going through. And, and so when Brandon died, um, um, I was able to go to the hospital the, the day before and, and, and say goodbye to him. And, and I just like sat there like poor, like bawling and like, saying everything that I wanted to say and like covering his shirt in tears. And, and there was like so much closure in that, that experience Mm. that like it was, it didn't make it any easier in the days after he was gone, but it felt like in the weeks after and in the months after there was this like ability to be like, okay, well like this is life now without him. And like, I still have the memories of him. And like, if you know, I miss him, I can go back and listen to the podcast conversations that we had and hear his voice. And, and I still feel connected to him. But in that other situation when I didn't have the closure, it was like so much harder to deal with. And I feel like, I, I feel like, you know, that just speaks to the ability to like, to like express your grief. And if you're unable to express it and not able to give it this outlet to, to let it out, then it's so much harder to bottle it up and deal with it inside.
0: Totally. That's so wild too. Cause her, did you say your friend's name is Mary Beth? Yeah. And yeah. it's like, you were so young and then she died suddenly and mm-hmm. you couldn't go. That just sounds mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm really hard
0: I think you're right like I don't know how to exactly explain what you're saying but it does feel like there's a certain amount of processing or like feeling your feelings that you sort of just have to do and then sometimes it is hard to figure out how to do that you know like some people read poetry or other people go to a therapist or Mm -hmm. you know like watch something on tv that they know is going to make them cry you know Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a big question like how to do that
2: Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. On on that note then, <clears throat> um, you, you have a new podcast called Gravity, uh, where you explore uh, you know, narratives of of suffering, um, and and exploring this idea of like what what becomes possible when we look at hardships differently. And I think it's safe to say that like when we are in the midst of hardships, um, it's it's really tough to like find the way to look at those things from a a different point of view or or through a different lens, especially when you're like in the midst of it. I, you know, an example, a great example that I think every single person listening to this podcast right now can um, relate to is like this giant global goddamn pandemic we find ourselves in, you know, this is one of the hardest times we have ever and will ever experience um, in our lives. And it's for some of us, it's really tough to like, it's tough to find the strength or the will or the clarity to even like view this hardship from a a vantage point that is not just doom scrolling, like full of heaviness, (laughs) um, feeling like it will never fucking end. So with everything that you've been through Lucy and 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 you know the conversations that you're having on this podcast what what can we do like what can folks do to try and look and view at hardships from a different vantage point in order to to see what is possible when when we look at hardships from a different view
0: Yeah so um <clears throat> I can kind of tell you about the show or like maybe I can describe like how we conceived of it, basically I, so it sort of started partly out of grief and thinking about Paul, where there were these little snippets of phrasing that I would come across that would really stick with me or help me see something differently. Like there's this C.S. Lewis wrote about when his wife died, he said something like, um, bereavement is not the truncation of married love, but one of its phases, like the honeymoon, sort of this idea huh. like there's still someone in a marriage, even when someone dies, because <laughs> there's they're carrying the relationship in all these different ways. And mm. I was like, oh my gosh, that feels so true. Or like um, like someone wrote about how grief is like the inverse of love or the flip side of love, where the depth of grief is this is like mm. proportional to the depth of love. And I remember thinking like, mm. oh my gosh, that explains it so well. Mm-hmm. And so I started to notice like in the years since Paul died that I kept being drawn to people who were taking something that was really hard. And then looking at it in some way that doesn't always get looked at that might help people either on an individual level or collectively. And so like one example that sort of blew my mind, and this isn't about grief, but you know, the surgeon general Vivek Murthy, who's like, he was president Obama's surgeon general. And he's a surgeon general again in the U S and, um, He undertook loneliness as his big campaign as Surgeon General. And Mm. he was like, oh, I could do obesity and I could do smoking and I could do opioid epidemic. But actually when I go around the country doing these town halls, it's all loneliness. It's all people talking to me about how they feel disconnected or they feel alone. And um, so he sort of talked about loneliness being a public health issue and not mm-hmm. about unlovability or like you're a dork or whatever, but instead about this kind of cultural thing that everybody can be part of and it has public health solutions, um, mm-hmm. like even serving other people. And he came up with this whole list. And so he's, he's actually the first guest on our show. Cause I am so obsessed with his ideas and, We talked on the show. We also talked, um, to, um, activist Adi Barkin. Do you guys know him or have you talked to him? No. You should be friends. Oh my gosh. You should be friends. So he's, um, a pretty young progressive activist in the U S. Um, he's a lawyer actually, but then he, um, you know, is a really effective activist. And then he was diagnosed when he was 32 with ALS and, um, now he's like pretty ill with ALS and, um, like speaks through a vocalizer with eye gaze tech and um, obviously has a lot more trouble like moving around and communicating, but then um, continues to be a wildly progressive, a wildly successful activist, but he's written and then he came on our show to talk about like when you're an activist who has lived your whole life in a mode of resistance, that's like who you are to the core of your being is a resistor. And then something happens to you that at least in the moment, Um, or the foreseeable future you can't change Mm. like he turned to meditation and he like really had to wrestle with how on earth to accept this thing and then he he tries to think about like how do you choose whether and when to accept or resist and then how do you do that and he talks about it through like the serenity prayer and these various Mm. poets and he just is um brilliant and then We also talk about the battle metaphor in cancer. Um, We talked to this linguist who came up with a metaphor menu for cancer. So everybody talks about the battle and everyone talks about the journey. But then she uncovers like a million other metaphors, like an economics Mm -hmm. metaphor about how the exchange rate changes when you get cancer. Certain things have different values or an uninvited guest who leaves, but keeps a key. And we even talk about how
1: Taylor the likes climate- the
2: financial metaphors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can Finance. see Taylor getting hard in the back <laughs> and of exchange rates. Yes. Money, money.
0: <laughs> yeah. Anyway. And we talk about how climate crisis is not just like a sciencey issue of like parts mm. per million in the atmosphere. It's actually like a, a deep justice issue with historical roots and historical solutions and historical models Mm. for resilience and so some of those are individual but some of them are more collective and um it's kind of weird because we started conceiving of the show before the pandemic (laughs) I feel like it might have made more sense to be like oh no one's talking about hardship and like how wonderful (laughs) this." and now I'm like oh gosh everyone's so traumatized like Mm -hmm. why would you listen to a show about hardship but it's okay I mean like we're we're really proud of it and um, I think this is a show it's that people so need. Interesting. The, the people need
2: this now though. You know, it's sure. like I, yeah, totally. I, I I I don't think we're in a time where people don't want to look at and focus on hardship. I think we're I, I'm I I just watched um uh Bo Burnham's a stand up comedian, a really talented like musical comedian. And he just released a special on Netflix a couple days ago. It's so good. It, it re, it's it's huh. truly like a masterpiece of art. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's, a, it, but it, although it's very funny, it, I, me and my partner, as we were watching it, like we were both in tears, it's very, very heavy mm-hmm. moments. And it's this, um, you know, I, it's this thing that I didn't realize how badly I was craving seeing someone take what we're going through and, and, and regurgitating it back onto me in a way mm-hmm. that really made me feel validated, made me feel I, like, I'm not fucking crazy and, and showing me that like, yes, this is hard. However, there's also a lot of humor that, that comes for. and I guess, I guess I'm, there's a bias here too, because like, that is, that's my, that's my jam. Like that's, that's yeah. how I've taken my hardships and have found mm-hmm. my way through it. You know, <clears throat> in looking back at my life, it wasn't, it wasn't a conscious choice. It was just a, it was just this. This thing that I gravitated towards, which was comedy and humor and, and, and using comedy as like a, as a, as a tool to, to put a lens over everything that I'm seeing, all the hardships in my life and, and to find meaning behind it and to find humor that existed Mm -hmm. in places that people didn't think it really existed. In the conversations that you've had so far, um, um, and, and just like in, in general, looking back at your life and looking back at the hardships that you've faced, Lucy, do you, do you, what have, what have been your, what have been your tools? Like what, what have you used in order to, to view hardship from a, a different vantage point?
0: Hmm. Um, I mean, I guess like I'm a, I'm a talker and a reader and it's like the things that are immediately coming to mind are, um, sometimes I don't even know what I think until I talk about it. And so, um, you know, people close to me, therapy has been really helpful, um, especially in like tools, you know, for, you sort of can learn like how to think or reframe in your own life, which I think is really helpful. Um, and it's not like, Oh, hardship comes to you. And then you should just like, pull yourself up by your emotional bootstraps, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and like um, made out of gratitude. But I think that, you know, it's been helpful for me to learn like cognitive behavioral therapy and lots of modalities like that. I really love poetry, actually. And I feel like it's kind of like what you just said about how just hearing someone say, say how you're feeling back to you, it means so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think poetry often does that for me. Um, and you know, in my really hardest times, it's so hard to concentrate, right? Like you sometimes I'm like, well, I can't read a book these days or this month or year or whatever. And <laughs> but somehow I feel like I can always read poetry. It used to intimidate me. Like I felt like I was supposed to say something smart about poetry. And then <laughs> that just means like I hadn't read the right poems yet, you know. <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. So yeah, those are some of the things. And then exercise really helped. I feel like I would not be able to cope if I couldn't exercise. Yeah. We just, which, we just know, spoke someday to, I'll find out.
1: We, um, we just spoke to the host of another podcast called other people's problems. And, uh, they talk, they, it's actually, um, real recorded therapy sessions. Oh,
0: yeah. I heard about this.
1: And, yeah. Uh, this is, and,
0: um, Hillary McBride and Esther Perel does it too. Yeah, Esther yeah. Perel does yeah. it too. Yeah. 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 This
1: is Hillary's podcast. That's right. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and it like that, that was one of the biggest, one of the biggest takeaways that I had from the conversation was the fact that like just hearing other people talk about their problems can be so, um, it it just makes you feel less alone because you feel like you're no longer the only person in the world struggling with that. And like, it's, it's something that totally that sort of comes up on, on sick boy a lot, but hearing somebody else talk about it and, and know that, you know, that you're not the only one struggling can just be such a, um, comforting feeling. Yes. Mm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You This, this doesn't really like, th- it just popped into my head. I'm not even sure if it really fits here, but you had said something, you had said something er- earlier and I, and I, and it was something about like something about like taking your body for granted. And it reminded me of, uh, you know, it's old news for everybody listening to the podcast, but I got hit by a car a couple of years ago and I was kind of <laughs> broken pelvis and I was laid up and, mm. and, um, and, and, what you just said there, Brian, like, you know, like hearing other people's problems and, and like when you, I, I, we had started the podcast and for a really long time I was talk. we were talking to everybody and I felt like I could, I felt like I could empathize with everybody and I felt like I could see, see them where they were coming from like fairly well. And then I, and then when I got hurt and I was then now facing all of these like accommodations and like, things that i needed to change and things that i couldn't do and <clears throat> all of a sudden i was seeing that through like a very different a very mm. different lens and i'd be watching tv and i'd see somebody like stand up off of a chair really fast and walk across the room and be like wow that that's was inc- hard yeah. that's incredible how yeah. easily they just did that and i i can't do that at all right now <laughs> and uh and it just like it it, it did like it mm-hmm. like it allowed me to it allowed me to like speak to everybody from like from a different perspective and a different angle and like understand from that level. And it just, that, that just, I just, that just came up in my mind because mm-hmm. I was thinking about it earlier and then it sounded like when you said that Brian about like mm-hmm. listening to other people and hearing them have their, that their, their problems is just like, it just, it just lets you, I mean, that's been something that for our podcast has been like a through line of feedback from the very beginning is like, Hey, I, you know, I thought that really no one understood, you know, my, 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 my experience with depression you know, and then I heard this podcast where this person was talking about that. And although their experience was very different than mine, it was like, we're in the same boat together. And you know, we're, you know, I feel like now, like I've got, I've got someone to like paddle ashore with because we're, cool. we're, we're, we're in this together and I'm not as alone as I thought it was.
1: There, there is a really interesting dynamic between, um, trying to imagine what somebody's going through and then being able to like relate to the experience itself too, though. Um, we, we had a, a friend and, and guest on the podcast uh, before, Estelle Thompson, who, who spoke about grief. And we've talked about this a few times. But at, at one point, Jer said, I can't imagine what you're going through. And she was like, no, you you can imagine. You can imagine that. Mm-hmm. And for all three of us, it was like a a, a really profound moment where I was like, oh, I'm going to erase I can't imagine from mm-hmm. my vocabulary. Like, I want to start trying to imagine, even if it is really hard. But the interesting dynamic is that even if you can imagine and try to imagine, sometimes there just isn't like you can imagine, but it's not the same experience of being able to really relate to what it's like to be in that situation. And so it's important to try to imagine it, but it can't replace the experience itself of like actually going through that hardship and being able to relate on like a personal Mm -hmm. level of what it really feels like to experience that And, and the crazy part being that
3: how I feel about my, my accident, how pretty much everybody we've ever talked to feels about their illness. Um, like the, the, like I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't not have, have, have it had happened because like, Mm -hmm. because it, because it, it, it becomes such an integral part of how you have evolved as a person and how you see the world and how you see the relationships that you have and how you like what you said there, like um, um, Lucy about the metaphor for cancer. Like now everything has a different value. Like everything has a different value because the, my perspective has shifted and um, because of the, because of like a cancer diagnosis. And, and so like it's, it's, it's wild how, how important these how important yeah. and how like emotionally intelligent hardship can make can make people and how it can shape them into, you know, a like a a better version that that, you know, without har- like taking hardship away, the hardship that people go through, you don't become the same, like you don't become the same people that you would. You don't become the same like level of person that you would if you know, it was plain sailing through Mm -hmm. life. And so it becomes an incredible value to go through hardship and reframing hardship as valuable, I think is, 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 can be really hard for a lot of people and and understandably, but it it is so valuable. Mm -hmm. It's so
0: interesting because it's like, it's interesting to hear you say that you wouldn't change it because I wonder at the time, I bet you wouldn't have known that. Like, do you guys hear um, Krista Tippett's show on being she one time talked about um, she's this kind of this like thinker and theologian and she has these really deep conversations about all kinds of different things to do with being human and um she's probably in her fifties or something. And she's talked about how in her thirties, she went through this horrendous episode of depression. And she feels like now, as she talks about these deep subjects, that experience where she sort of like, I don't know how she has like touched that darkness or something makes her able to connect to people in a different way now, like you're saying, mm-hmm. but then she says, well, if you had tried to tell me that at the time, Mm. it would have made no sense at all. And of course, right. It would have been the exact wrong thing to say (laughs) at the time. And she just says like, it can take so long to come to that place and you can only do it on your own timeline. It's not like Mm. for anybody else to decide Mm
1: -hmm. for
0: you or, or even in like, if you should. Right. And so, but I, at the same time, I agree with you. Like there's, there are so many people who, have grown or changed in various ways that they they end up being grateful for. And I kind of feel like, I'm not sure there's like a point to suffering, but if so, like one of them is just the way it connects you to other people because it is so, it's something that everyone, mm. you know, yeah. suffering
3: is inevitable. It's so universal. Um, it's so universal. Mm.
2: <clears throat> Lucy, I, I, um, <clears throat> before we wrap, I wanna, I, th- this is something that's just like kind of come up. Um, a couple of times in my head during the conversation, I was like, yeah, that's that's a dumb question. Don't ask that. Um, but um, but alas, I'm going to ask it well, anyway. We'll tell uh, you. Uh, um, I I would you would you say that. I'm curious to know your thoughts on on whether or not you think that there is a a beauty to to the to the experience of grief.
0: Oh, I was hoping you would explain that a bunch more, and then I could be like, "Yes, what do you what do you said." Um, <laughs> oh, gee, I mean, I don't know exactly how to answer that. Um, it's like partly my instinct is just to be like, "No, what are you talking about?" But then, like in the way that grief is universal and so connected to love, um, like those things are inextricable, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I feel, I'm trying to think of what else to say. I mean, I think, I guess I think like poignancy is beautiful. I don't even quite know what poignancy is. Like, I guess I need to look it up, but I feel like poignancy is this sort of like experience of like things are so beautiful and fleeting or something, right? Like these mm-hmm. poignant moments of like, this will never happen again. Or like, this is just like exquisite. Um, I, there is sort of like an exquisiteness, but it's not in the, it's, it's only in the like
1: love part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It feels like it makes me think that there like has to be a balance between the two in a sense, because like, if, like if I think about the the moments of loss that I've had in my life, and I think um like if I could go back in time and prevent them from happening, would i like of of course i would i do whatever i I could, but like the reality of life is that I can't, and so the only way that I can cope with that is to see what type of silver lining there is in my like what am I grateful that I've taken away from that experience because what other way is there to live? Like, the, I, I still have my future in front of me. I still have today. I still have now. Like, if, you know, the person who I've lost, you know, in my life, if if they knew that today I wasn't living my fullest life because I was just grieving their loss, they would be disappointed because they would yeah. want me to be living my best life now too.
0: And also it's like you, you kind of can't, have like the fullness of love, for example, like unless you're willing to risk losing it, right? Yeah, like right, it's kind right. of the only way to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That was, yeah. The, the, that, I
2: mean, Bridie, Bridie, my wife has said a, a number of times, like, and this isn't her quote, but I don't remember who said it, but like grief is the cost. Mm-hmm. Grief is the price that we pay for love. Like grief, grief is the cost of love. Mm-hmm. Grease is yep, the word. Totally... Grease. Grease is Greece. the word. <laughs> Grease is yeah. the word. Yeah. yeah.
1: <coughs> it's yeah. WD40 yeah. The Lucy, um, <laughs> is the prize. Lucy. It's worth it all. Yeah. Where,
2: where can, uh, where can our listeners, um, stay up to date with what you are up to? How can they follow along with you and and your life and, and where can they find the podcast?
0: Yeah. So, um, I would love to connect with people on Twitter. I'm, uh, rocket girl md and our podcast name is gravity and it's uh wherever you listen to podcasts
2: amazing lucy thank you so much this was really 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 lovely to sit down and and chat with you it was Um, so nice to chat thanks for taking mm -hmm. the time really did mean a lot thank you so much yeah thank you
0: thanks
3: That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in.
1: If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a
2: Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend, Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy.